Thanks, Tony. Thanks, worship team. Good morning. We have been in the Gospel of Luke for a few months. We have been investigating Jesus, uh, seeing what we can learn from the life and ministry of Christ. This morning, we're going to take a little break from that series. We're going to kind of take a two-week break for today, Palm Sunday and next week, Easter. And we're going to preach a Palm Sunday text today. So if you want to meet me in Mark 11, that's where we're going to be. Those of you who are visitors, welcome. Uh, my name is Kenan Vaughn, and I've got the great privilege of pastoring here at Harvest Church, which is such a joy. Mark 11, and as you turn there, Palm Sunday, for, for many, uh, you know, billions, uh, technically billions uh, around the world today are celebrating this day, Palm Sunday. Uh, I have a hunch that many have no idea what Palm Sunday is really about or why it is so significant. Um, for many, I think that it's just kind of a spring tradition, uh, like the Masters, um, you know, like March Madness, maybe like spring cleaning or, you know, uh, planting some color in the front flower beds. It's just kind of what we do at this time before Easter. Uh, for those that grow up in the church, they, of course, know better. They know it involves a donkey and some palm branches and Hosanna and a few other things of that nature. Uh, but I think that somewhere along the line, I know for me, even growing up um, in and out of church, I never really grasped the significance of Palm Sunday. And it has a deep significance. What we're going to find this morning, and this is my goal, that by the time we finish this text this morning, every person in this room would know and never forget the significance of the truth declared on Palm Sunday by our Lord Jesus Christ, nearly 2,000 years ago, that literally in that day were a crossroads in all of human history. So I would pray that these, that same declaration of Jesus will be a crossroads in your and my life today. Amen? Amen? And so if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're in Mark chapter 11. We're going we're gonna to read 1 through 19. Here we go. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And, he had looked, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. It is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, Praise be to God. 
Father, I pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning, that the text would be rich, it would be full of truth, truth that would not uh, return void, that as the gospel is preached this morning, your Holy Spirit would be at work in our lives to convict us, to quicken our conscience, to prick our ears and hearts, to know truth when we hear it, and ultimately, Lord, to um, swallow up our pride in your glory, that we may surrender our lives to you. So I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat. Well, a little context uh, for our passage this morning, as we're skipping ahead, of course, in the life of Jesus, um, to this time where he rides into Jerusalem, this uh, somewhat famous passage on a donkey. And uh, I want to start by telling you, this is the 10th of Nisan. Just remember that. That's the date that scholars believe Jesus rode in, in our passage in Mark 11. Uh, The 10th of Nisan is the date. That's important. We'll come to that in a moment. And on that date, it's uh, four days before Passover. It's when all the Jews uh, in all of Israel within this huge radius of Jerusalem are gathered. And by, by, uh, by law, they have to. They have to come back to Jerusalem and celebrate this Passover feast together. And so it's a time of gathering. And when they come together, they would slaughter literally hundreds of thousands of lambs. Uh, And the reason they would slaughter these lambs was in celebration of God's faithfulness. Now let's look at it. It was in celebration of his faithfulness in the past, uh, the idea that they were once slaves in Egypt. You guys remember uh, Exodus? And you remember when uh, the plagues went out uh, as Moses was um, uh, going to lead God's people out of Egypt and and the the, the Pharaoh was stubborn, he was hard-hearted, and so finally God determined to kill all the firstborn in all of Egypt. Uh, People, animals, everything Egyptian was going to die firstborn. But to save Israel, he said, you slaughter a lamb and you take the blood of the lamb and you put it over your doorpost and the angel of death will come through and will see that you are mine and he will pass over you. Passover. So they celebrated God's faithfulness in the past to pass over them in judgment by a promise he had made to them. And guess what? They also looked to a future day when God would be faithful again to a promise he had given them, promise of a Messiah, where again, by virtue of a righteous Messiah, he would pass over them in their deserved judgment by the blood of a Messiah who would be shed on their behalf. So they would get together every year, and they would celebrate God's faithfulness to pass over them in the past, and his faithfulness that one day he would pass over them in the future by the blood of a Messiah. You with me? You kind of see what's happening? This is a big deal. By law, they come. All of Israel is in Jerusalem. It's packed. And in this particular year, 32, 33 AD, there's a converging storyline. And if you've been with us the last few months, you know about this storyline, that there is a, a young celebrity rabbi that's rising in the ranks. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And, um, and, and boy, the crowds can't get enough of him. Everyone wants to get close. Uh, his teachings are astonishing them. He leaves them in awe every single Saturday at the synagogue. He's uh, healing and doing uh, miraculous works. And he's claiming, we think he's claiming to be, gosh, could it maybe, I mean, the Messiah? And of course, the spiritual leadership are, are watching carefully, and they're noticing that he doesn't pay that close attention to their traditions and those things they've added to the law, those legalistic things by which they declare themselves to be righteous. And so they see things like in Luke 6 when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and they say, wait, you can't do that. It breaks our law. It breaks our tradition. And, and Jesus, of course, says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, which is a strong statement. It meant that, listen, if I created this day, and that's right, I created it, I'm God. If I create, I can do whatever I want with the Sabbath. 
To which the spiritual leadership said, wait a minute, if you're going to claim to be God, that's blasphemy. And it angered them, and they tried in that moment to kill him. And ever since then, they've been trying to capture and kill and silence Jesus. So this is a particularly interesting Passover year. As all of Israel is gathering in Jerusalem, and there's this rabbi that everyone wants to see, wants to hear, like wants to catch a glimpse of, and all the spiritual leadership of Israel say, this is our chance. Right? If he shows up here in Jerusalem, we're going to get him. There'll be no escape for him if he comes to Passover. And that's kind of the talk of the town. Like, is Jesus going to come to this Passover? Because he's a wanted man. Uh, modern day terms, he would be poster on every telephone pole going down Forest Hill Irene in Winchester. Um, he would be on the Crime Stoppers show. He'd be on FBI's Most Wanted. Um, he'd be the guy everyone is looking for because we've got to put an end to them. We've got to silence him. And so uh, uh, certainly he can't. Can he come to Passover in Jerusalem? As a matter of fact, I want you to see what uh, the Gospel of John says uh, about Jesus in this particular celebration. Here's the talk, John eleven fifty five. It was almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early. That's what this is, 10th of Nisan, several days early, so that they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. That was customary. They kept looking for Jesus. Like, everyone's looking for, for Jesus. But as they stood around the temple, they said to each other, what do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? Like, that's the talk of Passover. And so, on one hand, it's this idea that um, he's required by law to come, so Jesus will he'll be compelled. And on the other hand, it'll be this, gosh, that would be completely foolish. This would be like Martin Luther King showing up to a Klan rally. It's about the, and just saying, hey guys, what's up? We gonna do this? It's not going to happen. And, and, and if it does happen, Jesus better come in really low. Low profile, hood on, uh, eyes low. I mean, in fact, uh, as we get to our text, uh, you would expect the subheading to be something about, like, the secret entry, the covert entry, the subtle entry. And yet that's not, of course, what we see. And to understand what we see instead, many of us are going to have to check our... Um, uh, a stereotypical Christian subculture Jesus at the door. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, the, the weak, uh, wimpy, uh, white toga wearing 120 pounds soaking wet manicured fingernail Jesus is not the guy you're going to see in this passage. Uh, matter of fact, one historian, I love this, one historian said, this move, which we're about to walk through again, this move by Jesus of Nazareth is the most courageous move in the history of the ancient world, most courageous move that Jesus would enter a city seething with Jewish authorities that want his head on a platter. And he would enter, not covertly, not subtly, not silently, but triumphantly, making a declaration. In fact, that's why I think Jesus does it. It's an important question. Why in the world are you writing to your own death, Jesus? And the reason is Jesus has something burning on his heart. He has a message to declare. And I think in even the first uh, 11 verses of our text, we're going to see a three-part declaration that is burning on Jesus' heart so strongly that he makes the cor most courageous move in the history of the ancient world. So here we go, Mark 11, verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent ahead two of his disciples. So here's what he tells these guys. He says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied. So Jesus is prophesying here. On which no one has ever sat, 
untie it, bring it to me. If anyone says, hey, why are you doing this? You tell them, and listen carefully. The Lord, I'd underline that, the Lord has need of it. And he'll send it back here immediately. So they go away, and sure enough, just like Jesus said, they find what? A colt tied at the door outside the street. They untie it, and just as Jesus suspected, some standing out there said, what are you doing untying the colt? So they said what Jesus told them to say, and they let them go. And they bring the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed, they're all shouting this message. Are you ready? This is Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So let me stop there, and um, let's unwrap this three-part declaration. I believe it is a three-part declaration that Jesus is making. Uh, first thing we see in our text is that this phrase, the Lord, Jesus used to describe himself. Um, the Lord is a, is a, is a phrase that uh, always, when used scripturally, means God of the universe. It always encompasses, he knows all, he sees all, he's sovereign over all, he orchestrates all. And so it goes with the context that Jesus uses a title of himself as not only Lord, but what it would mean to them is God of the universe when he's telling them what the future holds. You're going to go here, you're going to find a donkey. They're going to ask you what you're doing. You're going to tell them this. They're going to let you go. Bring the donkey back to me. How in the world does he know this stuff? Well, he told them, tell them the Lord needs the donkey. I'm the Lord. I hold the future in my hands is what Jesus is saying. So the first part of his declaration in saying that he is the coming one, the Messiah, is I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And the second part of this declaration that Jesus wants to bring to a crossroads in our lives is um, by virtue of the mode of transportation he chose in that day, which was, as we see, what? A donkey. Um, the, 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 the foal or colt of a donkey. Um, Jesus chose a donkey not because it was the only animal available, uh, not because he couldn't think of anything cooler to ride in, um, Jesus specifically chose a donkey in fulfillment to a prophecy. I want to put it on the screen. This is out of Zechariah, uh, a well-known prophecy. If you are a God-fearing Jew, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is in Zechariah prophesying the Messiah. Here we go. Behold, your king is coming to you. It's as sure as day he's coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Yes, just as you think. He's righteous. He has salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah prophesies a day that the Messiah will come into Jerusalem, and he says he'll be mounted on the foal of a donkey. Um, uh, if you're not particularly familiar with the Old Testament this morning, let me just kind of uh, sum it up as a whole to say um, it is a record of the interactions between a holy God and his chosen people, Israel. And probably the most paramount theme in the entire Old Testament is God has made a promise to his people. And the promise is that there will one day be a Messiah who will come who will once and for all atone for your sin. And so the entire Old Testament, literally in one word, we sum up the entire Old Testament with the word anticipation. Like the whole Old Testament anticipates the coming of the one, the Messiah, the King. And so um, to the extent it's almost as if you're turning through Old Testament pages and you keep seeing prophecies over and over that are talking about this promised one, this promised one, this, it just whispers, someone's coming, someone's coming, someone's coming. 
And if you're a God-fearing Jew, or even the the child in the house of a God-fearing Jew, you know these prophecies. These are not foreign to you. They're not foggy to you. From the time you were born, you have been memorizing these prophecies, and you have literally gotten together with your buddies on the playground, and you guys have dreamed things like, hey, do you think think the Messiah might come, like, in our generation? Like, you think it it might be possible? Like, what if he comes when we're alive? Like, what would that look like? And, And, boy, we need to know the signs, and one sign from Zechariah is, hey, heads up, um, he'll come in riding on the colt of a donkey. That, that, that's one way you'll know him. Jerusalem re- will rejoice at one coming in riding on a donkey. So heads up when you see that. And so Jesus chooses very intentionally to ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey because Jesus knows the prophecy. And Jesus knows that that's what the Messiah will do. So Jesus is not just kind of haphazardly doing, uh, making ends meet here, he is making a declaration that says not only, hey, I'm Lord, you tell him the Lord needs that donkey, I am Lord, I am God, let there be no doubt, but he's also saying, I'm the promised one you've been waiting on, I am the king, I am Messiah, the king of the Jews, I am Lord, I am king, and by the way, culturally, culturally, the way this worked, um, this is very interesting, in Rome at the time, they would have what would call Roman triumphs, when a conquering king uh, would be uh, in the midst of uh, uh, winning uh, war on his battle campaign. He would make a stop through um, Jerusalem, and a conquering king would come through the eastern gate, which is called the Golden Gate, the Beautiful Gate, and uh, he would send heralds ahead, and the heralds would run ahead and say, uh, Behold, the conquering king is coming. Make way, prepare yourself for the king. And then the soldiers would come through waving their swords, and the people would uh, lay down their cloaks for the king to ride in on, and they would wave palm branches, which was a sign of peace and victory in that day. And uh, the the king would then be the kind of last guy in the procession. Everyone would sing his praises. It was all about the glory of the conquering king. And the king would choose to ride on one of two animals. Almost without fail, the king would choose to ride on a white horse. A white horse was a symbol of war. It was a symbol of, I'm a conquering king, and in the midst of victory, I am waging more war. So he wanted the people to know him as a conquering king on the war path. And that was very traditional. But there was one other option that a king could choose. If a king was coming not to bring war, but to bring peace, he would ride on a donkey. And enter the eastern gate and come through the Roman triumph on a donkey, as if to say, I am king, and I come to bring not war, but peace. So Jesus Christ, in fulfillment to prophecy, with incredible rich cultural meaning, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is to say, to anyone that knows the scriptures, I am king. And anyone in that day that knows the culture, I come to bring peace. You with me? Okay, so far, two parts of our declaration. I am the Lord, Jesus says, and I am the king who comes to bring peace. Now, there's a third part to the declaration, and you may not have seen it because it's, uh, uh, you'd have to study more of the historical context of this passage, as I've thoroughly enjoyed doing this week. Um, but there's a third part of this declaration that we can't see here, but scholars will tell you that Jesus does something fascinating. Are you ready for this? Um, when a conquering king would enter, I mentioned this a moment ago, he would come through the east gate. There's eight gates surrounding Jerusalem. Um, the, the eastern gate, the beautiful gate, the golden gate, uh, was had all those terms. It was the prominent gate facing east um, uh, through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley into the city. And that is precisely the gate that a conquering king would use for a Roman triumph. And it's the gate that Zechariah uh, and Ezekiel prophesy that the Messiah will one day come through. So you got a lot going on here where it's a no-brainer that Jesus enters the beautiful gate, right? On this day, scholars believe that Jesus did not enter the east gate. On this day... They believe that Jesus entered the only other gate that faces to the east that would be usable on the path that he came, which was the path of David's retreat so many years ago that now Jesus comes as the son of David to reign on his throne. He comes back in on this path of retreat. And there's one other gate, not the east gate, not where the conquering king will come in. There's one other gate, and it's known as the sheep gate. The sheep gate. It's not a gate for humans. It's a gate for sheep. And at this time of year specifically, why in the world is Jesus entering the sheep gate? Remember what day I told you this happens on? Tenth of Nisan. Tenth of Nisan is Lamb Selection Day in Israel. Lamb Selection Day and all this, where literally shepherds would herd tens of thousands of lambs through the Kidron Valley. And through all the muck and mud, they'd go through the sheep gate to be inspected for four days. Four days of inspection to figure out who the spotless lambs are so they might be slaughtered then on Passover for the sins of the people. And here comes Jesus, not riding on a white horse to make war, not coming through the east gate uh, that, they may, that they may know he is a conquering king. Here comes Jesus on the foal of a donkey. Here comes Jesus sloshing through the mud with tens of thousands of sheep, heading right for the sheep gate. Here comes Jesus to go through the sheep gate as the Lamb of God to be inspected for four days and then to be slaughtered for the sin of mankind on the Passover Eve. Friends, there will be a day where Jesus comes on a white horse. That day is sure. Um, <laughs> matter of fact, 16th century, this uh, uh, Turkish uh, ruler um, Suleiman the Magnificent, uh, Islam, uh, when he settled Jerusalem, the Jewish prophets were telling him, hey, one day the Messiah is going to take you out. He's going to come through these gates. They, they kind of they shared all the, all the laundry about the Messiah. And so he freaked out, and he sealed up the east gate with a 15-foot stone, built a graveyard outside because the rabbis aren't supposed to walk through the dead. He did all these things. He was so scared that the Jewish Messiah would come back and defeat him. And so to this day, if you visit, the east gate is sealed off with a 15-foot stone. But in Jesus' day, it wasn't sealed off. In Jesus' day, he chose not to enter the east gate as he one day will. He chose to enter the sheep gate. As if to say, third part of the declaration, I am the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for the sin of mankind. So here it is in the statement, I am Savior. I'm Savior. You guys with me? Three-part declaration, I am Lord, I am King, who has come to bring you peace, I am Savior. Now let me just push pause on our text and step out of the text and talk about what does it mean to know Jesus first as Savior. To know Jesus as Savior means first to know yourself as a wretch. Amen? Amen. To know Jesus as Savior is to recognize my need that in and of myself I cannot be merited as righteous before God. I just can't. So I have to have what amounts to a savior, someone who is righteous on my behalf, that can somehow sacrifice himself to be imputed to me, his righteousness, and he takes my curse upon him. 
And unless that kind of a salvific work happens, then I am doomed to destruction in and of myself. My deeds are as filthy rags. I know all too well the dirtiness and sickness and wretchedness of my heart. So I need Hosanna. I need a Savior who will save us now. To know Jesus as Savior is to know myself as broken, in need, a wretch. And my plea to him as Savior is a plea not based on anything I've done or ever could do. It's based purely on his loving grace. That by grace, through faith, I can be of the redeemed of God. By the way, you know what we call that? We call that the gospel. That's the good news. Just doesn't get any better than that. That there's hope for the hopeless. There's faith for the faithless. There's life for the dead. Because he rode through a sheep gate and said, I'm the Lamb of God. Slaughter me that they may have life. What does it mean to know Jesus as king? Well, let me, let me say, I, I think if, if Savior is about salvation, I think uh, kingship is about service. I think it means my life for your kingdom. My life for your glory, my services for your kingdom. That's what king means. But here's the deal. To know Jesus as king starts with knowing him as Savior. Here's what I mean. This is all I want to say about this. When you really know Christ as Savior, and I mean like really know Christ as Savior, here's what you know. You know his healing touch. You know his abiding presence. You know his amazing grace. You know his redeeming love. You know that something has changed. You know the peace of his presence. And when you know those things, you know what happens? Something in you, it's like seeds of gratitude are planted deep in the soil of your soul that give root to this love. Like you just begin to not love the things in the world as much as you used to. Now you love the God of the world like you didn't used to. And those seeds of gratitude give birth to love, which gives birth to obedience. I don't have to obey. Now I want to obey. Something is radically changing. And obedience leads to service. I want to serve Jesus as king. So Hosanna is to say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Send me is to say, I want to serve you as king. And the two go like this. To know him as savior is to know him as king. What does it mean to know Jesus as Lord? Savior is about salvation. King is about service. Lord is about surrender. Surrender. I love the term Paul uses. He calls himself a bond slave. Bond slave. The idea of a bond slave is this. Free man can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, serve whoever you want. You're on your time. And Paul says, as a free man, this is what bond slave is, a free man, I voluntarily enslave myself to a master for a lifetime. Who does that? Voluntarily enslave myself to a master? Well, I'll tell you, you don't do that. I don't care how good of a man a man is, if he's still a man, you don't, you don't make a lifetime surrendering commitment to any man unless he is savior and king, unless he's Jesus. So Paul says, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And the reason we can say the same is because he is Lord. And so our response is the privilege of surrender. Surrender. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, threefold declaration. I'm 
Lord, I'm king, I'm savior. And by the way, I'm not Lord or king or savior. Again, hear me say this, to know Jesus as savior is the privilege of serving him as king, is the joy of surrendering him as Lord. And the heart of God is for every one of us in this room to know him as our savior, our king, and our Lord. Amen? Well, I, uh, I did not title the talk this morning, The King's Declaration. I almost did, and we almost stopped there. But isn't this too much fun? Um, I figured y'all had nowhere to be. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I thought, you know, we've got to hit the back half. This is too good. And so I titled the, the, the message this morning, The King's Indignation. Because there's something that now happens on the back end of his three-part declaration that I found, and maybe it was just where God hit me this week, I found it to be riveting. So I want to share it with you this morning. So let's push play again and jump back in in verse 12. Actually, verse 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. So here he comes. He had, he has risen, uh, ridden in. And he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So get the picture. He goes in. He sees something. We're about to see, but he sees this is something happening, and he just kind of takes it all in. He literally looks around and goes like this. Huh. Hmm. Hmm. And retires for the night. Not the way I always pictured this in Sunday school, by the way. But that's what he does. Okay? Uh, very quickly, verse 12, on the following day. So he sleeps on that. Whatever he saw in that gaze, he sleeps on it. The next day he comes back, he's hungry, sees a, sees a fig tree, and he curses it. It's like, what is he doing cursing it? And here's why he cursed it. It had leaves but no fruit. And Jesus is about to go in, and in his righteous indignation, he's about to cleanse the temple where the Jewish leadership have leaves but no fruit. It's a prophetic moment that his disciples don't miss, that they're all show and no substance. It's religious activity but no worship. Are you with me? And he comes in, watch this, verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem. This is the next day from when he took in this gaze. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and seats and sold pigeons. You know, I always, I always felt like he did that in like some fit of rage. Like he saw it and said, wait, what? And just freaked out in patience and rage. But it wasn't so much that. Okay, this is after a night of prayerful processing. And Jesus comes in and goes to war. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything in the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of robbers. And, of course, the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. In that gaze, on that evening before he retired to Bethany, what exactly did Jesus see? comes into the temple. By the way, temple in Old Testament, it's a, it, there's a parallel to be made to the church today, but it's not exactly the same thing. This is where you went to meet with God. Everybody listen. Where you went to meet with God and where you went to, uh, uh, to have your sins forgiven. Like where you went to confess sin and repent before God. So it was the place you met with him and the place where you protected enemies with him. And it had to be the temple because that's where God was. Okay, we today, are our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6 says, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he lives in us, and we have a high priest that we don't have to go to Jerusalem to see. His name is Jesus. And so we can meet with God anytime. We can live prayerfully and live missionally, and we can have our sins dealt with any moment in repentance before God. Amen? Isn't that a treasure? That I, I take that for granted every day. That it used to be a lot more difficult to be right with God. But there are some parallels, because listen, Jesus looks out at the temple, 
And here's what he sees in a nutshell. He sees organized religion. He sees institutionalized religion. And he sees business being done. And he sees the spiritual leadership using their authority to grow a business that profits them and not the people. I thought about whether or not I should say this, but I think I should. If we were to raise our eyes across the landscape of the church in America today, I think the parallel to what Jesus saw on that day would be scary. I think we'd see tremendous organized religion I think we'd see institutionalized religion. I think we'd see incredible amounts of religious activity from empty hearts. And I think we'd see leadership that lords their leadership and authority over a people to make a profit so that the church of Jesus Christ in America today has become in large part a business. And Jesus has a visceral emotion to this. I'm sure he's grieved. And it leads him to anger. And I don't think Jesus is mad at quote unquote us. I think he's angry for us. Hey, Jesus knows this isn't the gospel. It's not legalism. It's not empty hearts and activity that somehow satisfies a distant God who otherwise would rain thunderbolts down on our disobedience. I think Jesus sees this and he hurts for us and he's angry for us because he wants more for us. He knows that those things we crowd out Jesus with are the very things that steal life, not give life. I think what he wants for these people is that they not be impeded from the presence of the almighty God who satisfies their aching souls. He sees religious activity and wants so much more for them. He wants a place of prayer so they can meet with God. He wants a place of confession and repentance before God. He knows what his people need. And it's not merely a good deal on pigeons for Passover. It's not merely tradition. It's not merely ceremony. And Jesus sees these things that impede the true worship. And he cleans it out. He just goes to war. And so here's the application. I want these two questions to literally roll around in our brains all week long. And the first question is, uh, what is stealing? Because again, we don't have to go to the temple. For me and you, it's every day. What is crowding out the space for us to meet with our God? What, What is impeding our literally coming into his presence? There's just too much junk. What's our junk? Let me get the ball rolling. I think Jesus wants to go to war with you, for you, and for some of you, I think it's workaholism, because that's the, that's, that's our, that's the coin of our day. That's what we do, and we've, we've made that into a, some kind of a virtue or ideal, and it's not. We've made work an idol, and Jesus has to take a back seat, because we don't have time because of this. And, and for some of, some of you, um, and some of us, I think it's Facebook, I think we spend literally hours and hours on Facebook and very little time meeting with our God. Let me tell you something, Facebook won't do it at the end of the day. 
Facebook won't satisfy the deep, dark longings of your soul. But it can sure steal the time away from him who can. For some of us, and I'll raise my hand on this one, for some of us, it's, 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 a, it's a, a, an idolatry with sports. Like I feel stressed out sometimes in March because of March Madness. I don't, even, I don't even have a team. Like what am I stressed out about? But there's just brackets and, you know, everybody's competing and the teams are going and I'm going to miss the game. And, ah! Somehow it's just like March and April are tough for my quiet times. That's embarrassing, but I think it's true. I think culture can have its way with you. It can crowd you out. For some, I think it's Pinterest. I don't even know what Pinterest is, okay? <laughs> Take courage, men. I have no idea literally what that is. But I hear about it all the time. Pinterest won't satisfy the longings of your soul. I don't even know what it is, but I promise it won't. I want you to ask the question this week, what, what, what needs to go that I have space? For some of us, it's busyness. It's just there's kids' schedules and family schedule and being people, and I just got so much schedule, I don't have any Jesus. What is it? Find out what needs to be cleared out so that the temple is the temple, so that it's space where you can go and you can be with the Lord in prayer. And here's the second thing. At the temple, you didn't just go and be with him. You confessed your sin. You repented of your sin. And so the second question I want to roll through your head this week especially is, what is the sin in my life that I need to confess and repent of before God in order that I may have intimacy with him? I don't want you to do the same thing they did which was go through Holy Week and Lent and nail all your devotions and come to Good Friday service and come to Easter service and do the whole rigmarole so that you might be right again with God. Do everything except deal with the darkness in your life. Let's not make the same mistake they did. Jesus goes to war on it. He says, clear everything else out. Bring your sin to the Lord. Repent. He'll heal you. Ceremony won't do it. Tradition won't do it. He will do it. We're actually going to have a good Friday service this Friday night. Six o'clock, all family. And here's, here's what we're going to do. It's going to be a, a kind of reflective time. It's only going to be about 45 minutes. I know it's hard for the kids. It's going to be a reflective time. We're literally going to have a time where um, we write out a prayer of confession to the Lord. Now, if you have small children in my boat, that just freaked my wife out because we hadn't discussed this yet. Um, if you got small children, you're like, I can't write a prayer of confession with, you know, three guys, then write it this week, right? Just bring it, okay? Just bring it. We're going to write it there in the midst of somber reflection, or we're going to bring it. And at the end of that time, we're literally going to somehow get this cross, Andrew, I don't know how we're going to do it, somehow we're going to get this cross over to this area, if that's possible, um, and we're going to literally take our prayers of confession, we're going to take them to the cross. This whole thing's been a journey to the cross, so we want to dump our junk at the cross. And the whole idea is this. Uh, Jesus paid it all, and that's what that symbolizes, that, that, that sin had left a crimson stain, but his blood washed it white as snow. So we're going to leave Good Friday with a hope that if he's alive, we're forgiven and we're freed, and we're going to come in Sunday morning, and we're going to blow the roof off the place because he is alive. The tomb is empty, which means we do have a hope, and it's a living hope our sin is dealt with 
and intimacy is restored because of the grace of the gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Well, here's where I want to end our time today. It's Palm Sunday. Um, uh, there's a reason Jesus did this. And what I mean by this, like th- there's a reason he, um, he, he rode in on the 10th of Nisan in 32, 33 AD. There, there's a reason he, um, he entered the sheep gate. There's a reason he cleansed the temple. Listen to me. There's a reason that four days later he was willing to be chained and let out of a garden like a convict. There's a reason that a day after that he was willing to go before the authorities and be tried and accused and spit on and mocked and slapped and beaten and loaded down with a wooden beam and a crown of thorns and forced to walk the Via Dolorosa out to a hillside called Golgotha. And there's a reason that he was nailed to a cross and raised to the point that in his dying breath he said, To tell us die, it is finished. And the reason is he has a strong, abiding, redeeming, unshakable love for you and I. And it's that love that led him to go to war against anything that blocks the people of God from the presence of God. Until we see him face to face. And oh, by the way, we will see him face to face. John says this. I saw heaven open, and behold, not a donkey, friends, a white horse. The one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head, or many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. That's us, by the way. Follow him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword to which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe. And his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And friends, Suleiman's stone will not hold him on that day. And on that day, there's a song that goes up. I love reading Rev 4, 5, 7. Uh, There's a specific song that goes up in this scene in heaven, and it's in Rev 7. It's a specific song, and it's led by the martyrs. It's led by those who have given their lives for Jesus out of the great tribulation. And the song, literally, here's the scene. After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, people, and languages. John would ask, who are they? He would get the answer. Those are those who have given their lives in the tribulation. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with what? Palm branches. We've seen those once before. You know when we saw those before? Mark chapter 11, when the people declared that Jesus Christ was the Savior, and they hollered out, Hosanna, which means save us, and they waved the palm branches. You know what palm branches symbolize? Ultimately, number one, victory. It says victory is ours. Nearly 2,000 years ago, they waved palm branches to say that victory is ours in Christ. One day in the heavenlies, the martyrs will lead the saints in a song that says, victory is ours in Christ. From beginning to end, it's true. The challenge is that we would live in that reality today. They wave the palm branches, and look at the words they sing in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The song of the martyrs. Here's the way I want us to close our service today. We're going to have a time of communion. 
time of communion is for those who have um, put their full trust, surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They've said, I am yours. Um, they haven't simply grown up in the church or had a Christian grandmother that prayed for them. They've surrendered. And we come to the table and we celebrate that he's faithful and true, that he did shed his blood and he will come again. And so we, we eat that which represents his body and drink that which represents his blood. We celebrate the gospel. And we're told in scriptures, be careful. If there is sin in your life that you, right now you're going, man, oh gosh, that vertically separates you from God, horizontally separates you from someone else, abstain from the table this week. Deal with the sin sometime between now and Easter Sunday and celebrate that you are reconciled to God and to man in Christ on Easter Sunday. Amen? For those that are right with God, as far as your conscience knows, and right with others, we take communion. This morning when you take communion, I'm going to ask you to receive communion, receive the elements, and I'm going to ask you to grab one of these. This doesn't look like what it looked like in my storybook Bible as a, as a third grader in Sunday school. But this is a palm branch, okay? It's one branch. It's a palm branch. Um, I'm going to invite everyone to get a palm branch when you receive communion. And here's what I want to do. Just thought this might be a cool moment for us, maybe even a tradition. That when we uh, finish communion, <clears throat> Tony's going to lead us in a song, and it's going to be a very specific song. Um... It's going to be the song of the martyrs. We're literally going to sing those words. And we're going to declare, just as they will and we will one day in heaven, and just as has been declared 2,000 years ago, we're going to make a declaration in response to Jesus giving his to us. Our declaration will be, we have victory in you, Lord Jesus. Victory is ours in Christ. And I want us to just wave these palm branches and sing these words. It's almost a dress rehearsal for a day that's coming. And friends, I want to invite you to sing these words loudly. If he's worthy of our lives, and he is, then he's worthy of our praises this morning. Amen? So if you'd bow with me, I'm going to pray. We're going to have communion, and we're going to sing this song and wave these branches and declare victory in Jesus. Father, thank you for our time. Uh, this passage is just, gosh, Lord, as we just think about what you did and how you did it and why you did it. Uh, Lord, I just, I just pray that you be magnified in this place. That even as we close this service, uh, there be less of me, less of us, that we are just lost in your presence. God, that you fill this place with the reality that you have brought us peace. You are our peace. And Lord, you are bringing us victory every day. And one day it will culminate. One day it will culminate as you come and you reign and you bring justice, judgment, peace on earth. And Lord, for all of eternity, we're in your presence. There's a river of life. There's no tears being shed. That we have victory. So, Lord, we want to live this very day, Palm Sunday, 2014, in light of that day that is coming. That day is as sure as the one that has come. And, Lord, in this time in between, let us live in the victory you've given us by the blood you shed on an old cross at Golgotha. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.